0: Thank you, Father Aaron, for welcoming me back, so to speak, to Emmanuel. It's been about two months, I think, since we've been together, which at this point seems like a whole other lifetime. I, I used to shave back then. I have fond memories of some of you shaking my hand. That was really nice. I haven't shaken anyone's hands in over a month. You know, it's odd with everything that's going on, but the whole world turned upside down. It's the little things that have been getting to me. I first noticed it shortly before the shelter in place order went into effect. Uh, I went out to the store for our weekly grocery run and uh, my my wife around St. Patrick's Day every year likes to cook a corn beef dish, which of course goes with potatoes. So I was trying to find red potatoes at the store and I couldn't find any or any potatoes for that matter. It was really odd. Uh, So I, I went to another store, no potatoes there. I went to a third store, still couldn't find any potatoes. I didn't realize it, but the hoarding had begun. People had started buying everything that could last in the pantry for longer than a couple weeks. So I call up Kristen and uh, I I say, Kristen, I, I haven't been able to find any potatoes. I don't know what you want to do. She said, well, you know, it's not ideal, but I do have some boxed instant mashed potatoes in the cupboard. I guess we could use those. I said, Kristen, I think those are like three years old. They've got to be stale by now. I'm going to find some real potatoes. So I went to another store. And guess what we had with our corned beef dinner? Boxed mashed potatoes. It was every bit as mediocre as you might expect. It was so frustrating. So help me. I just wanted to enjoy some St. Patty's Day corned beef with potatoes that were harvested in the last decade. Was that too much to ask for? Now, I am fully aware of how ridiculous it is to get worked up about potatoes. I have so much to be thankful for. My, my family has food on the table during a time of, of real economic uncertainty. This particular problem was, well, small potatoes. It was a small thing. It wasn't a big deal. So why did it bother me so much? Well, I think it might be because my frustration wasn't about potatoes. It's about what the potatoes symbolized. It was the loss of control that I was experiencing. Part of me felt like I needed to find potatoes because if I could just find potatoes, everything would be okay. It would show that things weren't as bad as they seemed. The potatoes briefly became a symbol of normal life that I was holding on to. In the last week, I've seen this play out in the national news. In a few states, Vermont and Michigan among them, they've started clamping down on the sale of uh, what are considered to be non-essential items. So s- stores have been closing off toy sections and clothing sections and home improvement and so on. And I, but I've been seeing a few social media posts that are especially frustrated about the closure of the gardening sections. And I guess I kind of get it. You know, we've had a lot taken away from us this spring. We've lost church, we've lost our schools, some of us have lost jobs. And I want to ask, is it too much to ask that we'd be able to keep our gardens? Where we can do something we enjoy outside in a perfectly socially distancing way? For those who are able to do it, gardening is like this little oasis of normal in a sea of chaos. But when we're grieving the loss of something or someone, we often find ourselves clinging for dear life to what still remains to us after everything else has been taken away. I have in my possession a little, here we go, a little Smurf figurine. It's a silly little thing. It's made of, I don't know, some kind of rubber or plastic. It's not worth a penny. Um, It's I I don't display it or anything, I'm not a big Smurf fan, I don't think I've ever even seen a full episode, but it has traveled with me to the last seven places I've lived over the last 14 years. And the reason is it belonged to my youth pastor who uh, one summer while I was studying abroad, I I got the call that, that he had died unexpectedly trying to save someone's life in the Fox River, and I never got to say goodbye. And so when I came back, oh, I was invited to take one of these little. He had all these Smurf figurines, and I was invited to, to take one to remember him by. It was this tangible link to someone deeply influential in my life who is now gone. And, and I've never been able to bring myself to get rid of it because it reminds me of him. It's the one thing that I that I have left that belonged to him. The gospel passage that we read today, which was from John chapter 20, is about someone who is hanging on to what she has left of her beloved teacher and Lord. Last Sunday, Father Aaron introduced Mary Magdalene to us. She's the one who went to find Peter and John after she discovered that the stone had been rolled away from Jesus' tomb. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Mary Magdalene, but last week, Father Aaron uh, told us that, she, that Jesus had delivered her from severe demonic oppression. So she understandably has this deep affection for Jesus. But Luke 8 also tells us that Mary is one of several women who provided for the needs of Jesus and his disciples. Now, we don't know exactly what that meant. It might have been everyday me- needs, like preparing meals or lodging or things like that. Uh, many commentators believe that Mary was a woman of means, and perhaps she was a financial benefactor of Jesus and his ministry. Whatever the nature was of her assistance, one of the few things we know about Mary is that while Jesus was alive, she took care of him. That's what she did, she took care of Jesus. So what does Mary do after Jesus dies? She did what most any grieving person would do. She clung on to the only thing she had left of her Lord. She couldn't hear his voice anymore. She couldn't see his smile. All she had left was this deceased body. And she could take care of Jesus's physical needs one more time by making sure he received a proper burial. This is what she and uh, some other women we learned from from one of the other gospels, uh, this is what they were doing first thing in the morning. They were bringing burial spices to Jesus's tomb. These would have been very expensive and it was part of the proper uh, burial of a person in Jewish custom at this time. It was one final act of care for their departed friend. It was Mary's final opportunity to care for Jesus's needs like she used to do. So perhaps you can imagine her distress at finding that the body is missing. You see this distress in her interactions with other people in John chapter 20. First, Uh, we we see that she goes and finds Peter and John. That was the passage we read last week in in verse two. She goes and she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. She's not just upset that someone may have desecrated the tomb, although that in itself would have been a terrible thought. She wants to know where the body is. So Peter and John run over there to check things out. And chances are by the time Mary got there, because remember they were running. We learned that last week. Peter and John ran to the tomb. Well, by the time Mary got there, they were probably gone already. So there she is, left at the tomb, not knowing what's happened, weeping. Now she has not only lost Jesus' company, but she has lost even his body. And all that she has left is this empty tomb. So she bends over, stoops down to look in the tomb, and she sees two angels sitting on either side of where Jesus had been laying. And the angels speak to her. And they say, woman, why are you weeping? That phrase, calling someone a woman in contemporary English sounds a little odd. In in this context, it would have been a normal thing to say. Jesus says that to his mother. He he says, woman, it was a gentle address. And so they could say, woman, why are you weeping? Now, the angels aren't clueless. They know why Mary is weeping. They're not looking for information. Typically in the scripture, when you see God ask a question or someone representing God asking a question, it's not because God needs information. It's not because he doesn't know. It's usually an invitation for the person that he's asking the question to. It's interesting that the angels don't tell Mary to stop weeping, do they? They actually invite her to name her grief. They invite her to share the source of her distress. But in that question, there's also an invitation to faith. Jesus had told his disciples that he would rise from the dead. So when the angels ask, why are you weeping? There's an implicit question behind the question. Don't you know? Don't you know that Jesus is alive? But Mary's answer is very telling. If you've ever experienced sudden grief, you know that grief has a way of overwhelming a person. A grieving person may be unable to deal with the big picture of what they've lost. And so when we're grieving, we may hyperfocus on smaller concerns that we can deal with, right? So when the angels ask Mary, why are you weeping? She doesn't talk about her grief over Jesus being gone she talks about her more immediate grief, that she can't find his body, that his body has been taken away and she doesn't know where it is. With her world turned upside down, she's clinging to Jesus's body, the one thing she has left. Then Mary becomes aware of someone behind her. Maybe she thinks it's someone who can tell her where to find the body, so she turns around and sees Jesus himself standing there. But she doesn't realize that it's him. The passage doesn't tell us why she doesn't recognize him. Some have suggested that maybe her eyes were full of tears. Since she hadn't been expecting to see him, and it was early in the morning, and she had teary eyes, maybe she wasn't quite able to make him out. Others have suggested that, uh, they pointed out that after Jesus' resurrection, other people also had trouble recognizing Jesus. And so others have suggested that maybe there's something different about Jesus' resurrected body. Whatever the reason, Mary thinks he must be the gardener because, I suppose, who else would be there at that hour of the morning? Uh, Why why else would he be in the garden? And so Jesus asks her the same question. He says, why are you weeping? And he adds, whom are you seeking? Again, Jesus obviously knows the answer to this question. He's not looking for information. And I don't think he's playing games with Mary either. Once again, without negating her grief, Jesus is inviting her to share what's grieving her. But he's also offering a gentle invitation to faith. See, in this moment, Mary is looking for the wrong thing. She's looking for a dead body. She's not looking for the resurrected Jesus. She's looking for Jesus's body. And in her relentless search for his body, She's unable to recognize the true object of her desire that stands right before her. She mistakes Jesus for a gardener who might be able to help her find the body. And she says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. There's a bit of dramatic irony here because that word sir in the original language can also be translated, is is also the word for Lord. And so, She's clearly intending it just as a polite address. She's calling him sir. What she doesn't realize is that it's actually her Lord risen from the dead, but she doesn't realize it until finally Jesus says her name. He says, Mary. He says her name and invokes their relationship. And when she hears her name on his lips, suddenly she's able to recognize who he is. She calls out, Rabboni, my teacher. Can you imagine her joy? The passage doesn't say it, but I imagine she probably went to embrace him. Or perhaps, as it says in in, in Matthew, it talks about uh, the women falling down at his feet and grabbing onto his feet. But then Jesus says something rather confusing. He says, do not cling to me. Or as other translations say, do not hold on to me. And it just seems so unlike Jesus. Mary has been grieving since Friday and has been looking for his body, and she finally finds him alive. And he tells her to let go. But if we read on, we'll see why. It seems so much. It seems like it's unlike Jesus, but we see why if we read on. Jesus says, I have not yet ascended to my Father. It's like he's saying, Mary, you don't have to hold on to me as if I'm going to disappear, as if you've lost me. You know how goodbye hugs are always longer than other kinds of hugs? When you're about to lose someone, you hold on to them tight and you don't let go for as long as you can. This isn't a goodbye hug. This isn't the end of something. This is the beginning of something new. This is not the time for clinging on as if it were a goodbye. Now, I don't think we can blame Mary if her instinct was to desperately hold on to Jesus' body. She thought she'd lost him for good. She'd been looking for his body because she wanted one last chance to say goodbye. And so when when she sees her, naturally she's going to want to give that goodbye hug that, that maybe she'd been longing for when she processed that this was the resurrected Jesus, when she saw the resurrected Jesus, it changed everything. Once she encountered Jesus, it was time to come out of missing mode and go into mission mode. She'd been missing Jesus. She'd been missing the time they had together. She'd been looking for his body, but it was time to move on from missing mode and go into mission mode because Jesus had a mission for her. She is to go and tell the other disciples the good news that she has seen the risen Christ, that he is alive, that he's going to return to the Father in glorious victory. Jesus is sending Mary as an apostle to the apostles. An apostle is someone who has been sent, and she is an apostle being sent to the apostles. Mary had come looking for a chance to serve her dead teacher but Jesus is offering her the chance to serve the risen Lord. He's not being callous. Far from it. He's meeting Mary at the place of her deepest desire. All this time, she's been looking for his body, but it's not about the body. It was never about the body. What she truly desired was to be able to serve Jesus, whom she loved so much. And now she had a chance to do just that. She was being sent on mission. Many of us, like Mary, are weeping about something. I think we can relate to Mary in missing mode. Perhaps not externally, we may not be externally weeping, but internally, there are things that we mourn, things that we grieve. It's true in normal circumstances, and it's especially true in this season. Some of you have lost so much Some of you are experiencing profound loneliness. You may be going through debilitating financial uncertainty. Some of you may have even lost loved ones during this time. And with the restrictions on social gatherings, maybe you haven't even been able to truly grieve, truly mourn this person that you've lost. Or maybe you're not grieving a physical death. Maybe you're grieving a friendship, a relational death a romantic relationship, even a marriage. The last thing I want to tell you, to, to, the last thing I want to tell you is not to mourn. In fact, it may be that you need some space for your grief. Perhaps you need someone to ask you the question, why are you weeping? If you're watching this alone at home or with, with someone you trust, You may even want to answer that question out loud. Pretend Jesus, imagine that Jesus is the one asking it to you. Why are you weeping? The Bible is not going to steamroll your grief with platitudes about how time heals all wounds. When Jesus' friend Lazarus died, Jesus wept along with everybody else. Even though he knew that in a few minutes, he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. See, the world is not as it should be. The world is broken. And grief is a healthy, appropriate response to a broken world. The biblical word for what we're doing when we grieve is lament. The Bible is full of lament. There's a whole book called Lamentations. The Bible acknowledges and it affirms our grief. But it doesn't leave our grief unresolved. The reason the book of John is called a gospel is because it is good news. That's what gospel means, good news. Jesus entered into our pain, into our loss, into our suffering, into everything that was unleashed in the world as a result of humanity's sin. He entered into that. And he didn't enter into that so that he could say, oh, wow, that's really hard. Wow, I know how you feel. No, he carried our grief. He carried our suffering. He carried our death so that he could bury our grief, so that he could bury our suffering, so that he could bury our death. Mary came to the garden looking for closure, but what she found was Jesus's resurrected victory. As Christians, we believe in a historical event that changes everything. And when we have encountered the risen Lord Jesus, when we have embraced the good news that Jesus is alive and that he has conquered death, it changes the way we grieve. The Apostle Paul says that Christians don't grieve like those who have no hope. That's not to say that we don't grieve. Of course we grieve. But our grief looks different because we know that all of the dead and broken things that grieve us now will one day be restored and renewed by the one who has conquered death. On this side of Jesus' resurrection, yes, we still experience loss. We still experience grief. It still hurts. But when we do experience it, we no longer have to cling hopelessly to what we have left. See, so often in this broken world, loss makes us a victim twice. When our trust has been broken, we may withdraw into the safety of our own hearts, making it difficult to be vulnerable with anyone, to experience a loving relationship, When we've lost financial stability, it makes us want to hold on to what we have left so that we we lose the blessing of generosity. When we lose a loved one, we may become anxious about our other relationships, maybe even controlling, because we're afraid of losing those two. Without the resurrection, it makes perfect sense when we are grieving to hold on for dear life to anything that we have left. But when Jesus rose from the grave, he demonstrated that the power of death is temporary. There is nothing that we can lose in this life that we cannot more fully enjoy on the other side of death. We are resurrected with Jesus. When we experience loss, it's real loss, and it's painful. But it's also temporary. In fact, all of the good things that we enjoy in this life point us to even better things, even more beautiful things in the life to come. That garden that you enjoy tending, it's not going to last forever. But the restored Garden of Eden, that's going to be forever. The home that you enjoy, it won't last forever. But Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, a home that will be forever. We're missing our family and friends right now. We love the people in our life. God's given them to us for the the, the period of time that we have on this world. But He's preparing us for an eternal friendship with Him, a lifetime, an, an eternity as part of His family. If we let this truth sink into our hearts and guide our minds, we will still experience loss. And when we do, we will will still mourn our losses. But we no longer have to hold on to what we have left in a death grip. And when we're able to let go of those things that we're clinging on to, when our hands are no longer clinging to the corpse of what we've lost, it frees us. It frees us to receive from the Lord. It frees us to take risks. It frees us to be generous. It frees us to love, to be bold. The resurrection has the power to move us from missing mode to mission mode. Many of us are still in missing mode during this season. And that's appropriate. There's a lot that we're still grieving from 2019, and and that's not wrong. But let us not grieve like those who have no hope. Let not the things that we are missing distract us from the mission that God may be calling us to on the other side of this pandemic. If you turned, if you tuned in to the diocesan vigil, vigil a week ago Saturday, you heard Bishop Stewart talk about this, about how we're not trying to get back to where we were before the pandemic. God is leading us forward. We dare not cling to the corpse of what we thought 2020 was going to be because the risen Jesus Christ has a mission for us. I don't know what that mission looks like, the specifics of it for you personally. I don't even know what it looks like for Emmanuel. What I do know is that there are so many people in the city of Chicago who are dealing with the grief and loss of this pandemic, of this shelter in place period. Without the knowledge that Jesus has conquered death, There are people in our life who need to know the love of Jesus now more than ever. They need someone to ask them, why are are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? They don't know it, but they're seeking Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who can restore all the things that we have lost. Jesus is the one who's going to be making all things new. Jesus is the one that our hearts long for. Now, this is a tricky time to show love to our neighbors. In fact, this is a time where we love our neighbors by staying distant from them. So I recognize that you may not be in a great position to walk alongside people who need Jesus, at least not in person. This is, but when things begin to open back up, we have two choices. We can try to cling on as tightly as we can to everything that we're getting back, everything that we've been missing. We could hunker down with the friends that we haven't seen in a while, in our communities that are already established. We can try to go back to business as usual, retreating into missing mode. Or, what would happen if we used this time of isolation, of social distancing, if we use this time to pray for our community, to pray for those around us who need an encounter with the risen Christ, so that when those doors open and mission time comes, we'll be ready. We'll be ready to introduce them to our risen Lord for whom they are seeking. I hope that during this time, you'll be able to carve out some space in your life for prayer, to listen for Jesus calling your name and calling you into mission. Ask him to prepare your heart to be sent on mission when the time comes. My prayer for you is that even in this dark time, that you may be able to say along with Mary, I have seen the Lord. And like Mary, may you carry the words of Jesus who, to those who need to know his resurrection hope. Lord, thank you that you have not left us alone. We thank you that the things that we have lost are temporary. And that the hope that you promise us is eternal. And we pray that your resurrected hope, your resurrection hope would would come into our hearts and fill us, that we might be ready to receive from you what you have for us during this season. Lord, soften our hearts for those around us who need you. Lord, open our eyes to those who are hurting, to others who are lonely, to others who are processing grief. Lord, I pray that you would burden our hearts with compassion for them. And that when the time comes, that we would be willing to bring your hope, to bring your good news, to share our experience with the risen Jesus, with them. Lord, I pray for your encouragement on Emmanuel. Lord, I pray that that you would reveal yourself to each one of us during this season and that you would be glorified in this church and in all the world in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.